This is God's holy and errant word. Please give it your full attention if you would. Now there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which was brought, bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. When the money was all spent in all the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence? For our money is gone. Then Joseph said, give up your livestock and I will give you food for your livestock since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys. And he fed them with with food in exchange for all the livestock that year. When that year ended, they came to him. The next year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent and the cattle are my Lord's. There is nothing left for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food and we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die. And that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. Thus the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt, Egypt's border to the other. Only the land of the priest he did not buy. For the priest had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and for and you may sow the land. At the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own for seed of the field and for food. And for those of your households and as food for your little ones. So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in your sight, in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, valid to this day, that Pharaoh should have the fifth. Only the land of the priest did not become Pharaoh's. Verse 27. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt, in Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time came for Israel to die or to Israel to die, draw near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I die, or when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. 
And he said, I will do as you have said. He said, swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of his bed. This is God's holy and errant word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now that you would give understanding to our minds and listening to our ears and belief, faith to our hearts, Lord, as we consider this remaining chapter, that you would be glorified in our understanding, that you would be glorified in our obedience, uh, and Lord, that we would exalt you in all that we do. I decrease that you may increase. Be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning once again. Uh, I greet you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our studies through the book of Genesis. Uh, We come this morning to the second half of the 47th chapter of the book of Genesis. Joseph's brothers have stood and testified before Pharaoh. They have testified of their lineage and their path of sojourning in the land of Egypt. They were given permission to dwell in the land of Goshen. And Israel has also stood before Pharaoh. Israel, standing before Pharaoh, was presumably standing before Pharaoh to be examined. And rather than be examined... Israel was used by God to be the examiner. He was used by God to to bless Pharaoh. Something that would have been uh, out of the norm for someone who is seemingly coming to be blessed by Pharaoh. Through Israel, God pronounces a blessing on this pagan king. And this morning, uh, with God's help, we shall examine and further examine the results of Israel's blessing, which was really God's blessing upon Pharaoh and how Israel prospered in Egypt. The scriptures begin in verse 13 by once again describing the severity of the famine. In verse 13, now there was no food, In all the land, because the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. At this time, the famine in the land would have most likely been in the middle of the fourth year. You will remember that the Lord revealed to Joseph that a a great famine a severe famine would ravage the land for seven years. This is most likely the fourth year of this severe famine. There were still, therefore, two or three more years to go in this famine. The scriptures mention once again that the famine was not isolated to Egypt, but that it touched the land from which they left, the land of Canaan. So there are no resources in Egypt for men to acquire on their own on the land. And there are no resources in Canaan 
for men to, to acquire on their own in the land. It is almost as if there was uh, nothing to go back to. If they decided to leave Egypt, there was nothing to go back to. At least not at that particular time. So this chapter is an interesting one. It's one that's often overlooked. But there is famine in the middle of this chapter, the beginning of this chapter. But in the midst of famine, there's also prosperity. And great prosperity. So this morning, we would like to consider uh, the prosperity, oddly enough, in this chapter. The prosperity in Egypt. Let's consider our first point this morning. Pharaoh's prosperity. This is verses 13 to 26. Uh, You will remember in the first half of this chapter, Jacob pronounced a blessing on Pharaoh. And it seems as though Pharaoh is immediately blessed. Pharaoh immediately begins to prosper. With this famine comes an opportunity for Pharaoh. It's an opportunity for him to to nationalize the land, to nationalize the livestock, and even to nationalize the residents of the nation. And this was accomplished through the, the wise dealings of Joseph. When the famine struck, people from all over the land came to buy grain, in Egypt, the Lord gave Joseph an understanding that uh, there would be seven years of plenty. And so Joseph wisely planned ahead. Joseph wisely stored food into storehouses. Uh, so much food that there was not enough room to store the food in the storehouses. Of all those, if you can imagine, all of those coming from all over the land, coming to Egypt to buy grain, the money that was accumulated through this purchasing of grain was vast. Joseph collected this money. Being the faithful servant that he was, he brought all of the money from the grain into the storehouse of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, therefore, became a a very rich man. Through this famine, Pharaoh was able to capitalize and become greatly rich. Within a year, though, those who had purchased all of the grain had eaten all of their own food. And so they return and they go to Joseph. You remember that Pharaoh calls all those who are coming to him, go to Joseph. He will tell you what to do. So they go to Joseph. And their plea to Joseph was, give us food. Why should we die in your presence? They were on the verge of starvation. Dear saints, have you ever been hungry? How long has your hunger lasted? A day sometimes, a few days sometimes. When we are imagining this idea of the starvation of Egypt, We must imagine absolute desolation. We must imagine devastating famine, the likes of which you and I have never known and and prayerfully will never know. It's the kind of famine that we see often on infomercials, those 
commercials that we often want to change because we cannot stare or, or bear the image of these starving children with their bloated bellies. In order to save their lives, they give the only thing that they have. They, they say, take our cattle. We, we have nothing. You've taken our money. The money is gone. Take our cattle in exchange for food. And so Joseph takes their cattle. He takes their donkeys and their sheep and all. And Pharaoh not only acquires all of the money, but Pharaoh acquires all of the cattle. He is greatly prospering. And then another year passes. And the food is all gone. Pharaoh has acquired their money. He's acquired all of their cattle. And they come to Joseph and say, We will not hide from our Lord that our money is spent. That our cattle is yours. There is nothing left for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes? Both we and our land. By us. By our land. And we will be slaves to Pharaoh. In order for the residents to be saved, the residents of Egypt give themselves to the king. Have you ever been in those kinds of desperate situations? You need money. And you begin to look through those things that are valuable to you. And you begin to observe them and say, I would hate to, but, but it's either this or my life. They are literally giving all that they have to Pharaoh. Until finally they say, all I have left is me. And my land, take it. They give themselves to Pharaoh. They give themselves wholly to Pharaoh. They give their land to Pharaoh. And dear saints, in a matter of three years, Pharaoh... The king of Egypt has acquired all the money, all the cattle, all the land, and all the people as his own. As we discussed last time, this blessing of Israel was really the blessing of God. Pharaoh was blessed by Israel through God. Why? It was because Pharaoh was a blessing to Israel. God had promised that he will bless those who bless you and those whom curse you, I will curse. Well, Pharaoh did not curse Israel, but blessed Israel, gave them a portion of land, told them the best of the land is yours. Eat the fat of the land. And God in return has given Pharaoh all of Egypt. All of Egypt. The Lord was building his nation and those who were kind to to God, if you will, during his building project, would be blessed by God. Pharaoh had to be aware of this, didn't he? With Joseph in his house, he's not been concerned with anything. All things have been been in order. They not only survived the famine, but they have thrived through the famine. They have prospered through the famine. And now, Israel, the father of Joseph, is in his land. And he is prospering exponentially, increasingly. He had to be aware, Pharaoh, 
This family is is quite the, the good luck charm in his own pagan way. Unless we then overlook an important note, this idea of slavery. It is appropriately, especially in our Western understanding, it is appropriately a wreck, 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 uh, a terrible word. Why would Joseph agree to slavery? Joseph is the one who was in charge here. Joseph is the one who is accepting their bodies as collateral for food. Why would Joseph, God's man, agree to such a proposal? These people were on the verge of death. And it would appear as though Joseph is capitalizing, taking advantage of these people during a vulnerable time. It's because of passages like these that those who don't take the time to study the scriptures accuse God and accuse his word of condoning slavery. Some have said, finally, Joseph is behaving badly. All this time he has had no flaw and now we see greed and selfishness, even cruelty in Joseph. Some theologians, even some commentators, have compared Joseph to a type of Hitler or Stalin at this point. And that he would even tax the people on top of these things. Well, we must remember the circumstances of this text. The famine is severe. The soreness of the famine is widespread the land was desolate these were desperate conditions but the slavery that was offered was not like the slavery that you and I understand here in the west western slavery was horrific it was the horrific capturing of humans made in the image of God from Africa It was the capturing of these humans made in the image of God. These image bearers taking them to the West Indies in ships that could barely make it to their, to their location. Taking them to the Americas under inhumane conditions and selling them like cattle. That slavery is not this slavery in Genesis 47. Not in the least. Slavery is actually even forbidden by God in his word and in his law. Now, we must understand something about the ancient world that's vastly different from the world that you and I live in today. And that is this. The ancient world had no concept of receiving something for nothing. There was no idea of welfare during this time. There was no idea of unemployment Benefits. Think about that. Benefits for being unemployed. There was only the operation of if a man does not work, he does not eat in that culture. The world operated on that motto. It was not uncommon, therefore, to sell things in times of difficulty. 
in order to pay debts, in order to survive and eat. Animals sold, land sold, even individuals selling themselves into slavery in order to pay off debts. Matter of fact, in Genesis or Leviticus chapter 25, God gives instructions for certain circumstances such as these. That is, when someone was in debt or needed to survive, selling themselves into slavery, God commands that people in these desperate conditions not be treated as slaves, but as hired men for the person from another country. If they were to sell themselves into slavery, they were to also be treated as uh, human beings. And they also were be, to be allowed to go home in the year of freedom or the year of jubilee. They were not to be ruled like taskmasters, God says. And God calls his people, those who are receiving these servants, he calls these to remember who your God is. Remember, you belong to me. Therefore, to treat someone else who is made in my image is contrary to who you know your God is. God also says this, respect them. Don't treat them harshly. Remember how you were treated when you were in Egypt. Often those who had given themselves into slavery to pay a debt, oftentimes they chose to remain in the house of the one that they have bound themselves to. They would make themselves what is known as a bond servant. They would live in the house of their master because of their master's goodness, because of their master's provisions. They committed themselves to lifelong service because it was better with their master than it would be on their own. You have saved our lives, the people of Egypt said. Let us find favor in the sight of the of my Lord and we will be slaves of Pharaoh. You have saved our lives was their response. We hear the word slavery and we automatically are outraged. But they were not. Rather than outrage or feelings of oppression, they're filled with gratitude. You've saved our lives. Uh, rather than enslaved, they felt as though they had been liberated from the threat of death. You saved our lives. They were overjoyed that their lives had been saved and preserved, that they would have consistent food, consistent work. And Joseph spreads them across the land. Here are places for you to live where you can thrive. You've saved our lives. And do we not also know this liberation and this gratitude? For we were not on the verge of death. But even worse, we were dead in our sin and in our trespasses. We had no money. We had no cattle, no land, no labors. No tributes and anything that we would offer would be seen by God as nothing more than a filthy rag. Our minds were darkened to truth. Our hearts void of holy desires. Our wills were bent only towards evil. It was into that dark and dismal and depressing state that the greater Joseph, 
the Lord Jesus Christ came to undeserving rebels like you and like me and offered bread so that we would never hunger again and offered us drink so that we would never be thirsty again. We could not purchase this bread or this drink with silver or with gold. You know the song that we sing, no list of virtues we pursue. No fervent prayers, no lifted hands, no humble dress, no recitation of the truth could cleanse our conscience, cleanse our hands. No, we could not cause ourselves to live. Our only hope, dear saints, was and is in the greater Joseph, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do not give to Christ. Christ gives to us. We do not come to Christ and say, how about my cattle? How about my land? How about my car? What do you think? This in exchange for eternal life? There is nothing that we could offer. Christ gives to us. And in giving to us, he took on our nature. He became bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. He gives us his spirit. We are partakers in the divine nature of Christ. Christ gives us his riches and takes our poverty. Christ became poor so that you and I might be rich. Christ gives us his righteousness. He gives, do you see what he's giving? He gives us his righteousness and takes our sin. He was made sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. His blessedness He gives to us, it's ours. And our curse fell upon Him. He became our servant. Imagine the eternal Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, becoming our servant so that we might become His sons. He bears our cross, dear saints, so that we might wear his crown. He takes our shame so that we might share in his glory. He was crowned with thorns so that we might be crowned with eternal life. Do you see the greater Joseph? Do you see what he gives? Do you see how merciful, how kind he was when we were absolutely desolate and what do we do in return we are like those of Egypt who, who, who shout you have saved us you have saved us we shall be yours we offer ourselves to our loving Christ in thankfulness and in gratitude we give him our, our all not out of, of a, an ability to repay but out of gratitude Oh, you have saved us. Here, here I am then. Here is all of me. Benjamin Keach, the particular Baptist, is helpful in, in what he says we give. We give him our hearts. We offer our whole souls, all of our strengths, all of our affections, even our faculties, our powers, and the members of our bodies. He says, we give our judgments to judge and to choose Him. Our understandings to know Him. Our wills to obey Him. Our affections to desire, love, and cleave to Him. Our thoughts to contemplate Him. 
our consciences to be kept awake and to stir us to serve Him and to love Him. Our tongues to speak for Him, to pray to Him, to praise Him. Our eyes to look to Him and be employed by Him. Our hands to minister to Him and His ministers and to His poor saints. And our feet to travel to His sanctuary, to visit the poor members, to worship among the saints. We give ourselves to God. Ask yourself, saints, and all of the things that we have just read, what things are you not giving to Him? Is your mind His? Are your eyes His? Are, are your affections His? Your powers His? Your strengths, are they His? Ask yourselves this morning, what are you not giving to Him? What does He deserve? If we are like the Egyptians who say, you've saved us, then there should not be one thing kept back from Him. We give ourselves even as bond slaves, don't we? We're like the apostles Paul and Peter who often introduce themselves in their letters. Paul, a bondservant of Christ. Peter, a bondservant of Christ. Yes, I am his slave. Yes, he is my master. I would have no other master and be under no one else's care. He is a, a loving master. Not an unreasonable task master. He says that his yoke is easy and his burden his burden is light. You have saved us. You have saved us. How often do you pray when you pray a prayer of thanksgiving and simply saying this, you saved me. You would do well to remember where you have been saved from. You would do well to remember the desolation that you were in, the famine that you were in, the absolute widespread famine that you and I wandered about in and that we were rescued from. You and I would do well to remember that. I think if we often remember those things that we would not hesitate to give of all of the things that we know belong to God and even our income, Joseph is criticized for taxing the people 20%. He says, four-fifths you shall keep. One-fifth belongs to Pharaoh. 20%. Consider the taxes we pay here in California. Maybe one of the reasons why there is a mass exodus of this state. And Joseph requires a humble 20%. What is 20%? in light of their lives that have been saved. Let me ask you this. What is 10% in light of all that God has given to you? And we often will pull out, oh, I think I've got a few cents here. There is no outrage when God calls us to give. You have saved us. Hasn't he been good to you, saints? Hasn't he been better to, to you than you have deserved? Hasn't he rescued you and I from sin? Then let our gratitude be shown to the greater Joseph.
and giving to him all of our being. For he deserves it all. Secondly, Pharaoh prospers, Israel prospers. I'd like to read these verses to you in verse 27 and 28. If you would look, look along with me. Now Israel, that is Joseph or Jacob, lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen. And they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. Jacob then lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. Brothers and sisters, isn't that wonderful? Widespread, severe famine in all of the land. The Egyptians are giving all that they have in order to survive. But when the scriptures take its, its lens and its focus off of the Egyptians and focus them on the children of God, they are not struggling, but they are prospering. They are thriving in the midst of famine, severe famine. Here are these wanderers, these foreigners who have come into the land of Egypt. But they're not suffering like the Egyptians. In the most unfavorable, unpromising circumstances, God comes and makes a stark distinction between those who are His and those who are not. It's a tale. It's been a running tale, hasn't it? Throughout all of the scriptures of two kingdoms, of two seeds, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The kingdom of God is advancing. The kingdom of darkness is progressively losing its grip in the world. You will remember that God told Jacob, fear not to go down to Egypt, for I will go with you and I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you and I will surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. Jacob was on the verge of death. He believed that at any moment he could die. Even when he sees his son's face, he says, now I can die. And yet God and his promises are faithful, reliable, and true. The nation was thriving in a foreign land just as God had promised because God is faithful. They became fruitful in that land just as God had promised because God is faithful. In the midst of desolation, God causes lilies to grow. Because God is faithful. God is faithful to his word, dear saints. In the midst of global famine, the people are cared for. They thrive because God is faithful. No matter the corruption, no matter the severity of famine, no matter the, the how threatening the, the darkness of wickedness may be, God has promised that he will not leave us and he will not forsake us. God has promised that He will be with us, that He will build and protect His church, 
that no opponent from hell will be able to prevail against her. And God is faithful to his word. Israel stood before the king, the most powerful king of the most powerful nation at that time, and is given boldness to testify of the goodness and mercy of God because God is faithful. He and his family have been protected and shielded from the corruption of of Egypt, brought to the land of Goshen, given the land of Goshen, because God is faithful. And what is more, Jacob is given 17 more years to live. There were 70 when Israel went into Egypt. 70. After almost 200 years, they are only 70. But when they are in Egypt over the course of 200 or 400 years, they grow to 2 million people. Because God is faithful. They grow more in Egypt than they had ever grown before. Even when they are oppressed and persecuted in Egypt, they continue to be fruitful and grow because God is faithful. Saints, how many times have you looked? I don't know how we're going to pay the rent this month. Somehow it comes. How many times have you opened your fridge and there's only Arm and Hammer or whatever else you like in your fridge? And somehow, some way, you eat. I can remember a time when my wife and I were just married. We literally had five dollars. And we went to McDonald's. We made it happen on five dollars. Remember the, the how good that uh, dollar hamburger tasted and that dollar fries. T- and we shared the... Co- Don't drink too much. Share. We're sharing here. Somehow God always provides. Somehow God always makes a way. Somehow, and this is why God commands, don't fear. Don't be anxious for nothing. I care for the lilies. I care for the birds. I will protect and care for you. Don't worry. This is why worry is a sin. This is why anxiety is a sin. It is because we show a lack of faith that God, who has always provided for us, will somehow stop doing what He's always done. God is faithful. He will be with you. And He will not forsake you. Not only in our present bodies, but even, as we'll see in a moment, when we are on the verge of death, God will be with you. In 1948, Christian researchers and statisticians estimated that there were 850,000 Christians in the whole of the large nation of China. 850,000 in the entire whole nation of China. The communist nation. The nation that is anti-God and anti-Christian. Great lengths were taken at that time to expel missionaries from the, the, the from the nation, to savagely persecute the church and anyone who associated with the name of Christ. What was the result of this? The church went into hiding. The church began to be known as the secret church. They began to meet secretly in homes and underground mines and caves. And they would even baptize in the middle of the night in frigid waters just to obey the commands of Christ. 
at the end of 40 years, these researchers and statisticians estimated that there are now nearly 50 million Christians in the communist, anti-God, anti-Christian nation of China. They multiply exponentially. The church has prospered. Why? Because God is faithful to His Word. He will bless the church and cause her to grow no matter what the circumstances. She, we will prosper in times of famine and persecution because God has promised, I will go down with you. Do not fear and I will prosper you there. No matter what. God is faithful to His promise to save those whom He has foreloved. God is faithful to His promise to crush the head of the serpent, to destroy the works of Satan, to remove the stain of sin. God is faithful. God is faithful to sanctify us from sin, to make us holy in preparation to stand before Him. God is faithful to preserve those who are His. He is faithful to keep us from being deceived by the evil one. And He will be faithful to bring us home into the eternal Canaan, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's not all. God shows multiplied kindness to Israel. The man, Israel, Jacob, who entered the land of Egypt, uh, speaking like Jacob, I'm about to die. Uh, Joseph, I've seen you, now I can die. Uh, Pharaoh, my, my days have been long and they've been hard. I could die at any moment. God gives Israel 17 more years. 17 more years. The man who spoke of his fathers and how he and his life did not attain to their years. I've lived long, but not as long as they. God says, well, then I'll give you 17 more years. What's the significance of 17 more years, I wonder? Well, let me be honest with you. There may be absolutely no significance whatsoever. But I thought it was interesting, I'll just say. That Joseph was taken from his beloved father. When he was 17 years old. Joseph was the apple of his father's eye for 17 years. It may be that those 17 years before Joseph was taken from Jacob may have been the most fulfilling years of Jacob's life. And then just like that, he was gone. But then just like that, he was returned again. The son whom he had thought was dead was was in a sense born again, again. And God gave him 17 more years with him. If the first 17 with him were the most rewarding, maybe it was that the last 17 with him were even more rewarding. I get to see my son grown up. Don't you want that, some of you, for your, for, for your kids? You just want to see them grown. You want to see them doing well. You want to see them serving God. You want to see them doing well in life. That there are no uh, wants and no needs that, that God has provided for them. 
and, and should we be so blessed to see our children's children? To see if, if they name them after us. To see if they have some of the same qualities as our kids. So that when our kids get upset with their kids, we can say, you were just like that. Be patient with them. I often say that to my, my, my brother, who I was 10 when he was born. And many of his little uh, quirks that he had when he was a little boy, I see them in an Owen. So when my brother says to me, he does this and he does that, and I laugh, I say, you were just like that. Oh, I hope to be able to say that for my son. And for my daughter. And Lord willing for our new one who's coming. Can you see now maybe how it was a blessing for Jacob. To have 17 more years. Israel is now. On the verge of being joined to his fathers. And he has prospered in Egypt. But Israel will not allow the prosperity of Egypt to take his eyes off of his reward in Canaan. Let's conclude with this third and final point. Israel and his eyes on Canaan. Israel and his eyes on Canaan. Let's actually read these final verses in Genesis 47, 29. When the time came... For Israel, or I'm sorry, when the time for Israel to die draw near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. He said, swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed and worshipped at the head of his bed. This time, Joseph would not be taken from Jacob. But Jacob would be taken from Joseph. And he has some final requests, which you'll read here and more to come. But one of them is this. That when he lies down, that he would not be buried in Egypt. Don't leave me here. After 17 years, the time has come. And Israel is making his final preparations, as it were. For his departure from this world into the next. It is, as the scriptures say, the appointed time. And it was not Israel's appointed time. It was God's appointed time. God has an appointed time for all men to die, Hebrews 9. The time that a man and woman and boy and girl pass has not been appointed by a drunk driver. Not by a heart attack. Not by cancer. Not by COVID-19. And not even by passing away in sleep. But our passing from this life into the next has been appointed by God. Those are just secondary means that God uses to accomplish His appointed time. Therefore, no one, no one, look at me very briefly, 
No one ever goes too soon. Someone may live a short life, but it was what God had determined. No one goes too soon. They go when God has determined that they go. It may be tragic, but tragic for us. Not tragic for God. Tragic for us because we don't know the time and we don't know the place. But those times and places have been ordered by God. Therefore, we take comfort and solace in God. God knows. God knows what is right. God knows in his wisdom what is best. So although it may be tragic for us, God knows exactly what he's doing. Israel's pilgrimage was coming to an end. His journey was all but complete. He was like the Apostle Paul finishing up his final words in his final letter to his son Timothy in the faith. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but, but all those whom he has loved and who have loved his appearing. I, I want my final words to be something like that. If God gives us and you and I the grace to have an opportunity to have spoken words before our journey ends, don't we want our words to be filled with strength and boldness and faith like that? I don't want my words to be, God, not now. I'm not ready. There's still so much more I have to do. No, I want my words to be, I'm done. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've come to the end now. Lord, take me home. And Israel seems to know that the end has come. And do you notice, saints, he's not complaining about it. He's comfortable with it. Absolutely comfortable with it. Are you comfortable with the idea of death? Maybe those who you may leave behind are not, but you must be. And you must also teach them to be comfortable with it. Because it will come to all of us. Israel was not clinging to this world. If I could have only seen this, the Grand Canyon, if I could have only seen the Dodgers win, never happened in my lifetime, Lord. <laughs> he was not cast down, not for a moment. He was a man of faith. Life is drawing near, fading sunset. And he's ready to lie down with the sun. But he has a request, doesn't he? And it is a request that is attached to the covenant promises of God. He calls Joseph and says, don't bury me here. Take me to the land of Canaan. And listen, though God had given them the land of Canaan, <clears throat> only one portion of Canaan actually belonged to him. A cave. There is a cave there that is ours. Bury me there. J Jacob will say, actually, in a few uh, verses, there's also another portion of land that I took that's mine. I'm giving that to you, Joseph. But for now, he's saying, take me 
Take me to that cave. I think we need to, to ask the question at this particular point. What's the purpose of this? Think of all of the things that Jacob has experienced in Canaan. It's not been good. Pain and hardship and death and devastation and even famine. All of these things he's experienced in Canaan. One might think he would love to leave Canaan far, far behind as a distant memory. In Egypt, though, he's only been there 17 years and he is he and his family have thrived. They have prospered more than they've ever known. You would think that Jacob may have made the request to become a permanent resident or citizen of Egypt because of how much he's prospered there. Why go back? Because there's a promise there. And my presence there, it is a sign that I believe in that promise. God called his father said, I would make of you a great nation. I will give you a land. Through you, one will rise through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And me being here, it doesn't say anything about what I believe about that promise. I've got to go back there. I've got to be here because my being here shows that I believe in that promise. The land of Canaan was that promised land. And Israel's presence in the land proclaimed that he believed in the blessed promise of the blessed Redeemer, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. What are you doing here this evening or this morning, saints? It's the Lord's day. But for the rest of the world, they believe it to just be a Sunday. But you're here. Your body physically is here. Why are you here? It is because by your presence you are proclaiming that you believe in the promise of the gospel. It is by your presence that you believe in the promise that your Redeemer lives and that He will return to take you home to Canaan. Your presence here on the Lord's Day says so much about what you believe. And when you are not here, when you choose another venue other than the gathering of the saints then you show you don't believe in the promise of the blessed Redeemer who is returning to save you. Brother Bobby has said it, and maybe he said it jokingly, but I tend to kind of believe it now, that the Lord will return on a Sabbath. What other day would be more appropriate for his return? And where would we find ourselves On the day of his return. Mingling with the world. uh, Telling Egypt. I am your citizen. No saints. This is why it is so important. That you are here on the Lord's day. And not somewhere else. Because of what your presence signifies. About what you believe. It was a sign that his faith was in his Redeemer. Jacob was in another land, wasn't he? On his bed. 
And at that point, he's not saying, God, what about your promise? I'm here in Egypt. You promised us a land. You promised us a redeemer. And I'm living here doing well. But but it's not what you promised. He wasn't frustrated, was he? He held fast to the promise of God that would not be extinguished even by death. He longs for Canaan. He longs to return to the place of promise. It's interesting, sometimes I'll meet customers who are from different states or different countries, and you can tell immediately by their accent. They're not from here. They're not from California. They often say, we Californians are the ones with accents. But you go into their home, and there are artifacts from their country, pictures from their state. You soon ask them, why did you leave? I didn't want to. But I had to because of these circumstances. Do you ever go back? Oh, I don't get back as often as I want to, but I I long to go back home. Been here for 40 years, some of them. But I can't wait to go back home one day. They're enjoying the blessings of this state, this country. But they long to go back home. Israel heard a voice. It was not the voice of a country. It was the voice of God calling him back to the promises of God. The promises of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will give you a land. I will bring from you a redeemer. I've got to go back there. Because my being there shows that I believe this. Egypt, with all of its prosperity, could not dim or cast a shadow upon the promises of God. The covenant-keeping God. Don't forget this, Joseph. Don't forget that there is one who is coming who will redeem us from our sin. Don't forget this, Joseph. We've got to go back to the land Because our presence there shows that we believe in him who is to come. My son, don't leave me here. Take me back home. Lay me with my fathers. Lay me with those who had the faith that I have. I stand with them. I stand on their shoulders. Promise me, my son. And not only does Joseph swear it. But in swearing it, he also takes those promises as being for him as well. We will see later in the end of Joseph's life that he makes his brothers vow, don't leave me here. You also carry me out in the same way that you will carry out Jacob. Take me. Bury me with my fathers. Don't leave me here. My presence here says nothing about what I believe. I must be there. Can you imagine the words that were on their epitaph? The words that are on their gravestone, here lies. He died in faith, holding on to the promises of God that his Redeemer lives and his Redeemer will return. Even in death, Jacob wants to remind Joseph and then soon the rest of his children 
cling to the gospel. Hold on to the unchanging hand of God. Why? And it was because they were prospering in Egypt. And prosperity sometimes has a tendency to distract us from the promises of God. They could have been confused into thinking that Egypt was actually the land of milk and honey. And not Canaan where they belonged. They were looking forward to the heavenly Canaan. Let me ask you as we close. Are you looking forward to the heavenly Canaan? Are you ready to enter into that land? Will you say when it's time, I'm not ready, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. And if you are ready, are you pointing your Judas and your Simeons and your Josephs and your Benjamins toward that land? Are you readying your loved ones, not just for your departure, but for their departure as well. The Bible says that when Joseph agrees in this covenant ceremony, the hand under the thigh, Israel bows his head and worships at the head of his bed. You imagine this 147-year-old man laying on his back, calling his son yeah, calling him to, to fulfill his last wishes and promises. And when his son agrees and when his son takes hold of the promises as his own, you, you might imagine Jacob rolling over in his bed, bending his knees at, at the head of his bed. Here's his feet. Bending his knees and worshiping God in prayer. With, with the strength that he has left, he calls his son to believe and with the final strength that he has, he turns over and worships God. It's as if he's saying once more, now I can die. Now I can die. Israel's response is to turn over in his bed and to worship God. Have you known those moments, brothers and sisters, of being so absolutely thankful so absolutely grateful that you, you fall on your knees before God. That you are prostrate before Him. I pray that that could be something like our ending. We are coming now to the 48th chapter of Genesis. Just two more left. I pray that we will end the chapter on our knees, or the book on our knees, worshiping God. I pray that we would end the journey of our lives, our own pilgrimage, on our knees, worshiping before God. And at the end of it all, your children, your grandchildren, if the Lord wills, and those who have stories to tell about you will say this. He was a sojourner in this land whose faith was in God. And then we buried him with his fathers, those who held on to the same faith. And it is this, that our Redeemer lives and that he will return for his bride.
Let's pray.